Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, do open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, for those of you who are newer with us this morning, um, it is our habit to just take a book of the Bible and just start making our way through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we have been doing that now through the Gospel of Luke officially for three years. And so we find ourselves this morning in chapter 8, and specifically verses 26 through 39. This is a very famous passage and one that is filled with lots of intrigue and wonder. Uh, In many ways, it is a haunting passage, uh, one that can create a lot of questions, especially here in the West where uh, sort of overt supernatural activity is not really the norm for us. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but the central message and meaning of this passage is what we are most concerned with this morning. The details are the details, but the overall message is, is, what of, is what is of critical importance. And so before we jump in, let me begin by just reading these verses for you. Again, somewhat disturbing passage, but one whose meth- message is both redemptive and instructive. And so please follow along as I read these words of Luke, this physician and historian who was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 26, he says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him, and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he was commanding the unclean spirit to come out of him, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. And there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. If you've been here any length of time, then you know that we are not shy about talking about the reality of sin. To be a church that is slow to speak on such a critical and crippling but important reality, frankly, is not a faithful church. Rightly understanding sin is essential to rightly understanding the gospel. If you don't understand sin, then you don't know what you need saving from. And if you don't know what you need saving from, then likely you are not saved. In fact, as you know, the word 
gospel literally means good news. And so what makes it good news is that it comes up and against the backdrop of some pretty bad news. And a central component of that bad news, as far as the scriptures are concerned, is this reality of sin. Sin is everywhere. Sin is your enemy. Whether you understand it or not, whether you even believe in it or not, sin is something which abides within you. It abides within every single person who has ever lived. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the key word in that text is all, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oftentimes, the most important words in any text are the smallest words. And so here, all have sinned. And what makes that so frightening is that in Ezekiel chapter 18, God says that the soul that sins must die. That is the just payment for any sin committed against an infinitely holy God. And every single one of us fall into that category of all, so all, according to God, must die. In fact, that is why the death rate is 100%. Everyone always dies, all have sinned, and so everyone owes that wage of sin, which is death. And so there is no person who has not been born into sin. That is our state. That is our very nature And so what makes the gospel such good news is that Jesus came but to save us from our sin, to save us from that inevitable result and eternal wage that all of us must pay. And so he has come to forgive us of our eternal debt by way of his cross, came to accomplish the forgiveness of sin, came to pay that wage on our behalf. And so it is vital that we talk about sin Again, sin is one of our great enemies. Even for those of us who are in Christ, sin is something which affects you daily. Sin is your enemy. Sin seeks to destroy you constantly. And so until you meet Christ, it will be your ever-present foe pulling on you to get you to fall away. But we also have another enemy, And this is not one who dwells within you like sin. Rather, this is one who seeks to attack you, but from the outside. One who seeks to deceive and manipulate you. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, the apostle writes that the entire world, which is this fallen realm in which you and I live, but this entire world lies in the power of the evil one. Literally, it sits curled up comfortably in his lap. That is the world's home. That is its most natural place to live and dwell. This might be God's world. This might be his creation. But the scriptures are clear that all of us sit under the influence of the devil. He is the ruler. He is the master of this domain. And so the corruption of governments, the destructive ideologies that influence your thinking, the defiled wicked state of just about every single culture, the false religions that have deceived people into hell by the billions, all of that is the product of a certain influence. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 that our struggle, therefore, is not against flesh and blood. So your problem, beloved, is not the president or Congress. Your problem is not the Taliban. Your problem is not your spouse. Your problem is not your boss or your coworker, ultimately. And why? Well, because your struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is something physical. Rather, your struggle is against the power that sits behind those things, influencing, scheming, devising for wickedness constantly. And so Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so when you see something wrong in the world, do not assume, and mark this, do not assume that that is merely the result of sin. 
There are forces always behind those things working within them for tremendous evil. And that is not to downplay sin. It is a very great enemy, but there is a very powerful spiritual realm that uses the sin within a person to bring about its destructive purposes. And so not only do we need a deliverance from sin, which again is something that dwells within us, but we also need a deliverance from Satan and his minions. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 8, that Jesus came not only to deal with sin, but as he says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Paul says it another way in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 13 through 15. He says, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, that is, our sin having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. And then here it is. And he has, so he dealt with sin, but and he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. And so that is a very clear statement that the cross work of Christ not only dealt with the debt levied against you because of your sin. But he also triumphed over all those evil forces and powers which seek to thwart God's purposes. And so you have enemies. You have the enemy of sin. You have the enemy of Satan. Next time we're going to see the enemy of death. Those are the three great enemies that the Bible talks about. But this morning we're going to see a very penetrating event in which Christ begins to display his power over the spiritual realm, over these wicked spiritual forces. He will deal with them ultimately at the cross. That is where that final blow takes place. But this is a passage that foreshadows that coming work of Christ. Remember, chapter 8 is a chapter in which Luke wants to display the lordship of Christ over several different domains. First of all, he wants to show his authority over creation. We saw that last time with his stilling of the storm. We're going to see his lordship over disease and sickness. We're going to see his lordship over even death in that final passage. But this morning, we're going to see his lordship over the spiritual realm. There's an entire aspect of God's creation that we don't see or really even understand. We get shadows and glimpses of it in the scriptures. We belong to the physical and material aspect of creation, but there is also an immaterial or spiritual component to God's creation. And we get just, again, glimpses of this. We can't really affect that realm, but that realm certainly affects ours. There's a wicked side to that spiritual realm. There's a holy side, but there's also a wicked side. And that wicked side seeks to harm us, to destroy us, and specifically because it hates our maker, And so this morning, we're going to see a very powerful event in which Jesus Christ demonstrates in the simplest of ways that he has no equal. In fact, there is no fair battle when it comes to Jesus. We read of the cosmic battle waging between heaven and hell, and we think that there's a true battle going on, that there's some kind of fighting that's taking place, but it's really one-sided. In fact, as we're going to see this morning, demons have a very profound understanding of exactly who Jesus is. They recognize him. They fear him. As we're going to see, they even obey him. And they never do anything without his full permission. They do not dare to cross the divine permission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so take a look with me, if you would, to this Very important passage, a passage, again, demonstrating exactly who Jesus is, that he is that sovereign Lord over everything. And so my outline comes to you this morning in four parts. First of all, we're going to set the scene here with the maniac in verses 26 through 29. We'll then see the miracle in verses 30 through 33. We'll then take a look at the commotion in 34 through 37. And then we'll finish it out with the commission, 38 through 39. So the maniac, the miracle, the commotion, the commission. 
And so notice how he sets the scene here in verses 26 through 29. He states, and they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Matthew records it as the Gadarenes, but it's the same place. And so they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So this is Gentile country. We know this historically, but we also know this because notice there's pigs. That would have been unclean. Jews were forbidden to interact with any animal with a cloven hoof. And so right away you see Jesus' habit of always going to the sinner, of always seeking out that which is lost, seeking out that which is unclean, but for the purpose of making it clean. He is the one who has come to us, not us to him. And so here you have Jesus along with his disciples, traveling into that which is unclean. And there is, of course, a lesson in that for us, we who have been made clean by Christ. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but if we are to truly follow our Lord, then the gospel compels us to seek out that which needs him. We are to bring the gospel into a broken world. In fact, this is why Jesus commanded in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 that we are to go out and make disciples. We're to go out into this world so you don't wait for the world to come to you. Rather, we are to be busy bringing the gospel to the world. We are to follow him in seeking out that which is lost. We don't keep the world at arm's length, but we keep going into it. And so this demoniac with whom he has a divine appointment, notice, wasn't looking for him. He didn't see his need for Jesus. He didn't understand the power of Jesus. Frankly, he didn't even have a clue who Jesus was. And so as is his habit, Jesus goes to the unclean. When's the last time that you surrounded yourself with someone whom uptight Christians might get nervous about? This was Jesus' habit. Prostitutes, tax collectors, unwashed Gentiles, demon-possessed. He always went to the unclean. That was his way, and that is to be our way. Verse 27, and when he had come out into the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now, this is a very dramatic and dynamic story. This is a passage of great intrigue and mostly because of the demonic component. For whatever reason, that is a topic that becomes of extreme interest. And I'm not actually going to get into that too much because I've already developed that quite a bit for you back in chapter 4. And so if you are interested in how the demonic realm typically works and why it is that they'll seem to surface at times in the form of things like possessions. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It's the one in which Jesus encounters the demon-possessed man in the Capernaum synagogue. But additionally, we also did a number of episodes on angelology, Satanology, and demonology in our podcast. And so we dealt with this whole issue at very great length. And so I'm not going to spend time today developing that for you. But this is a very important passage may not seem all that important to us in the West where this kind of phenomena doesn't really seem to be all that present. But what I would say again is that just because we don't deal with things like overt demonic possession, do not make the mistake of assuming that Satan and his minions are somehow absent from you. In fact, I am convinced that he works just as poignantly, but in different ways. In fact, I would argue that his work has been much more effective in our culture. And because if you do go back and listen to those episodes, what you'll learn is that demonic possession is is really actually a sort of last-ditch effort done out of desperation. That is not the norm. That is not even necessarily their desire. They would rather remain hidden. They'd rather work behind the scenes. In fact, their best work is when they can get you to buy into the lie that they don't even exist And because their primary focus of work, if you can 
wrap your mind around this, it'll help, but their primary focus of work is almost always at the point of truth. That is where they attack. They follow their father, the devil. He is the great deceiver. His game is one of lies and deception. And so possession is not the goal for them. Rather, getting you to believe some kind of lie or falsehood is the goal. That's why the devil's greatest work is false teaching, or as Paul would put it, getting you to believe in the doctrine of demons. That is simply getting you to believe something false. Getting you to buy into lies and error. His greatest work is seen in the deception of every false religion and every false form of spirituality. It's seen in the utterly blinded and arrogant atheist. It is seen in the pursuit of materialism and achievement. And so their greatest efforts are spent getting you to believe and pursue meaning and purpose in anything and everything but Christ alone. And so while demonic possession is not something we really deal with in our culture in a major way, it's not actually the point of this passage. Rather, the point of the passage is to demonstrate the lordship of Christ over the demonic, which includes the works of the demonic, which in our case would be false teaching. And so the central meaning of the text is extremely applicable for us. And again, their greatest achievement is getting you to believe lies, to wander from the truth, to live in a state of subtle yet damning falsehood. And again, rarely do the demonic, hear this, attack with overt lies. Because those are typically easy to spot, and so they deal typically in the realm of half-truths. We see this, for example, in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, the devil did not overtly lie to Eve. Rather, he deceived Eve. And how? Well, with a tremendous half-truth. Remember, he took the very word of God, something that God had actually spoken, but then very skillfully and craftily reinterpreted it for her. Remember, he posed the question, and that's how it always comes. It comes as just a question. Posed the question, did God really say? So he took the word of God, but then got her to question, hear this, he got her to question the plain meaning of what God had said. In fact, the more truth that is presented, the better the deception, the better the lie. And so Satan will take the truth, but then twist it just ever so subtly. And so his goal is to get you to bite the bait of the truth that is presented, but so that you might swallow the hook of the lie It's kind of like how he'll hijack Bible words, things like justice, love, marriage. And so that is generally how the demonic realm works. They are most interested in attacking at the point of truth. And so demonic possession or strange supernatural phenomena is not really the norm. That's mostly just Hollywood. But this morning, we do see an extreme form of demonic activity in the possession of this man. And so notice how Luke sets the scene. We're introduced to this garrison demoniac, this man for whom for a long time was acting like a maniac. And so notice how Luke describes him. There are several things here I want you to notice, and we're just going to work through them quickly. First of all, notice he has not put on any clothes for a long time, verse 27. Now, the point to understand with that detail is that This is communicating that he was not ashamed of that which was shameful. That's actually what's behind this. In fact, as you may know, nakedness all throughout the scriptures is most often equated with shame. This again goes all the way back to the garden with the sin of Adam and Eve. Once they sinned, their nakedness now became an issue of tremendous shame Over and over again, as you trace it out all throughout the Old Testament, there is rarely anything good said about uncovering a person's nakedness. In fact, it's often used as a metaphor for sexual sin and perverse acts of corruption and shame. Now, that's not necessarily the case here with this man, but there is a very clear shameful component to nakedness, biblically speaking. 
It's almost always associated with various kinds of aberrant behavior, which, of course, displays that heart of rebellion. In fact, that is exactly what you are seeing being played out right now before your eyes in the so-called sexual revolution of our culture. Understand that that is the result of tremendous demonic influence, and that is not to say that everyone is running around somehow possessed by demons, but it is to say that much of the culture swims under a very powerful influence. In fact, it is ironic, isn't it, that such a shameful reality has come to be labeled as pride? That you should be proud of such shameful things? That is a veritable reversal of what God has actually said. There's a massive amount of people believing a very clever lie and distortion of the truth. And so this man, under the influence of many demons, throws off honor for shame. He is unclothed with no desire for anything holy. He wants to throw off the norm, throw off the culture. He wants to stand out as different. He is not at all concerned with how his actions affect others. Rather, his only concern is with self, and that is key. He does not care. He'll dress how he wants to dress, or in this case, not dress. And so again, at the core, the result of demonic influence is a heart of rebellion. It is a heart that does not find shame where it ought to find shame. It does not recognize sin or its influence. Even his own Gentile culture can recognize such shameful things, and yet under the influence of such wicked powers, he lives in a state of veritable delusion. And so the first description to observe is that he is naked, which, again, equates to being a person of unbridled shame. Second, notice Luke then describes him as no longer living in a house in the city, but rather he is isolated among the tombs. In other words, evidently, he is more comfortable dwelling among the dead than the living. He prefers seclusion. He prefers darkness and death. And by the way, that would have been a very unclean situation within Jewish life. You don't touch the dead. You don't even dwell among the tombs. That is considered to be ceremonial unclean. And so here, not only is Jesus, notice, going to the Gentile where they deal with unclean pigs, but he goes to one who even dwells among the dead. Again, just a tremendous commentary on the nature of what it meant for Jesus to stoop, for Jesus to seek out the lost. Third, verse 29, notice Luke states that he would be seized by these demons, creating a kind of supernatural strength. In fact, he was kept here under shackles and put under guard, but would often burst free, as Luke says. And so what is that saying? Well, evidently, he was extremely violent. The fact that he was shackled under guard seems to indicate that he was often a danger to people. In fact, Matthew is overt about that in his account. Again, you want to see the effect and influence of demonic activity. All you have to do is ask how quick a person is to bring another person harm. And again, you don't even have to be possessed to do that, but that is an indication of demonic influence. It is an indication that we dwell within this system which sits comfortably up in Satan's lap. In fact, they know how to use your sin and your own selfishness to gain a foothold and so that you'll often feel justified in bringing harm to others. Again, just take a look at the culture. So much anger, so much fighting right now over so-called personal rights. So much harming of other people. But all that really is is just the demand for self-gain at the expense of others. Again, this is why the truly Christian life is so countercultural. We are to be proactive in figuring out how to seek to build people up, and especially those who seek to harm us. In fact, that was the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to raise your fist in rebellion against all that is demonic, all you got to do is figure out how to love somebody. Figure out how to show someone grace who's actively seeking you harm. In fact, you are never more like your Lord than when you actively seek the good of someone who's trying to destroy you. Never forget that it is while you were yet a sinner and hostile in mind toward him that Christ died for you. But this man here was a violent aggressor. 
Again, he did not care. He was under the influence of these many demons, and so he was typified by violence and extremely angry. Fourth, Luke doesn't say it here in his account, but Mark fills it out in his in chapter 5. But in chapter 5 and verse 6 of Mark, he describes the man as not only bringing harm to other people, but he's also described as seeking to harm himself, which is to say that evidently he was suicidal. Mark writes, and constantly, and hear that word, constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gnashing himself with stones. And so again, he is a man typified not only by seeking to bring others harm, but also himself. This is a, the picture here is one of these demons tormenting him constantly. He was perhaps even trying to commit suicide to find release. And yet they would only allow him to do enough damage to have to keep inflicting pain. Mark also states that he would cry out constantly. We don't know what that really means, but as you can imagine, it was probably the sound of haunting screams. It's, it's written in the imperfect tense, and so this was just a constant howling, a constant screaming of cries and pain day and night without ceasing. And so this man lived in the perpetual state of self-inflicting torture. Fifth, as I said, Mark also states that he was constantly doing this day and night. In other words, what is the implication? He is likely an insomniac. And so he was irrational. He would shriek from these bouts of insanity. And so this is a man in some pretty bad shape. We're not told that this possession was the result of some unique sin in his own life necessarily. Rather, he was a Gentile like any other Gentile. He's void of the Spirit, void of God. That in and of itself is what makes a person a prime candidate for demonic influence. And this, of course, was an extreme form. And in fact, that is the point. We've seen Jesus interact with the demon possessed already, but this is an unprecedented form of demonic possession in fact, notice when Jesus asks this demon his name, he says that we are legion. A legion was a military term referencing about 6,000 men, and so perhaps this man had up to 6,000 demons in him. And it's not like they could get crowded because, remember, they're spiritual beings, and so they don't occupy physical space. And so it's best to understand this man as being under extreme influence of them. And so whether it was 6,000, literally 6,000 demons or not, doesn't really matter. The point is that there were a lot of them. In fact, we know there were at least 2,000 of them because that's how many pigs there were that drowned in the sea. And so this was a very dark situation. This is the state of this man. He is shameless. He prefers isolation, seclusion, darkness, death. He is violent both to himself and to others. He was insane. He did not sleep. He would howl and scream and cry. And so this man was utterly enslaved to the forces of darkness. Barely human. The image of God in him was extremely marred. And so this is the scene. This is the one to whom Jesus comes under divine appointment to demonstrate to these watching disciples that he is utterly sovereign, that he is Lord over even this. And so that is the maniac, but notice then the miracle, 30 through 33. Luke states, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion for many demons had entered him. Now, what's interesting is that these demons know exactly who Jesus is. In fact, in verse 28, notice, he cried out and fell before him, literally. He went prostrate and said in a loud voice, and, and these are the demons talking, and it's in the singular here because this is likely the representative of all the demons in him. But he said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God, and then he says, and I beg you, do not torment me. What does that imply? Well, that these demons know exactly who Jesus is. 
fact, that is a greater confession of Jesus than most people will ever make of him, is it not? They know exactly who he is. They have a very strong belief and understanding of Jesus. This is just like the demon in the Capernaum synagogue in chapter 4, whom upon recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, if you remember, shrieks out in horror, pleading with Jesus not to destroy him. Demons have a very solid theology. In fact, they have a very solid end times theology. They understand how this is going to end for them. In fact, the demon in the synagogue wondered if it was the time of destruction. And interestingly here, notice verse 31, it says that they were entreating him not to command them to depart. And where? Well, into the abyss. And so why were they begging him for that? Well, again, because they know how this ends. In fact, in Matthew's version, he records them as saying, and behold, they cried out saying, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And that is a key phrase. That is in reference to the time of their judgment. That final time in which God will throw Satan and the demons and all unbelievers into that eternal abyss. That place of torment, that place of final everlasting, conscious destruction. Many people view hell as that place where Satan and his minions will somehow rule. It'll be their little city where they'll forever gain pleasure in in tormenting people. But just understand that they fear the time of eternal hell far more than anyone here. And because they understand exactly what hell is. They might be in rebellion, but they are not deceived. They have a full knowledge of what is to come. They understand that hell is not where the party is going to be. When people say things like that, it just goes to show how they have absolutely zero ideas to what they're talking about. It is that place of a conscious living, but void of anything good. You think living here can be bad? Just understand that every single one of us dwells every single day in nothing but pure grace. There is so much grace every single day being poured out on you constantly, no matter how bad it may get for you or how much we like to gripe and complain from a heart of unthankfulness. But there is an existence in which day in and day out, there is nothing but the pure absence of anything good. It is the place where the worm never dies, as Jesus says. It will be an existence of death, but where the dead literally never die. Whatever that means. And demons fear this. They will not rule hell. Rather, just like those who reject the gospel, they will live in a perpetual state of abject horror, void of any grace. And so here, Jesus shows up, and they wonder if it is the time. In fact, they wonder if he has come to torture them before the time. And so what do they do? Well, they beg him, notice they beg him, do not destroy us, rather permit us to enter the pigs. That would be a better option. And so into verse 32, notice he gives them permission, and that is key. In fact, that is the essential point to observe in this text. He gave them permission. And so again, what is that saying? Well, it's saying that there's no true dualism here, right? There's no battle or competition. Rather, even the demons literally bow at his word. They need absolute permission for anything that they do. In fact, just like Satan needed permission from God to torment Job, these forces of darkness are never off of their leash. Rather, at all times and in all places, Jesus is in utter sovereign control. He is the son of of the Most High. They understand this. 
In fact, that is why James tells us that they shudder at him. They live in a consistent state of fear of him. And so for fear of it being the time in which they're cast into the eternal abyss, they beg him to be preserved for a time. What is that? They're begging him for grace. And so Jesus shows to even demons grace. And mostly because he still intends to use them for his purposes. In fact, Jude 1.6 tells us that there is a class of demons, a class of fallen angels, which is what demons are. There is a class of demons that have been locked up in chains in darkness until the day of judgment. Their sin was so abhorrent that God didn't want them anywhere near humanity. These were the ones who in Genesis chapter 6 had relations with human women and created that class of creature called the Nephilim, just a grotesque situation. But there are some more petty demons that he still permits to be loosed so that he might use them for his purposes. And so here he uses them to display his lordship to these watching disciples. And so he permits them to enter these pigs. And notice they enter into the pigs and the swine go wild. They literally begin to act insane and even kill themselves in the sea. And of course, the question here is always, why did Jesus permit them to enter into these pigs? Why didn't he just set the man free? Why these swine? Well, because how do you prove that the man's been healed? What's to say that this man wasn't just play acting or was just a crazy person for some other reason? And so the fact that these demons here transfer and enter into the pigs, Jesus' authority now becomes visible. It not only proves that the man was truly possessed, but more to the point, it proves that these demons bow to his word. It proves that he stands in authority over them. And so in verses 34 through 37, we then see the commotion. And this is the response of everybody This creates a literal commotion. Verse 34, notice, and when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it to the city and the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. So their pigs are in dealt with these, dwell with these demons. Mark tells us again, 2,000 of them. They then charge into the sea and commit suicide. In fact, remember, as I told you last time, the sea always represents chaos and disorder. And so this is where the demons charge into. It's a picture of their inevitable end. And so these herdsmen then go and report the events to everyone in the city and even everybody in the country. And so notice, all these people then come back to now see this very well-known demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what makes it so shocking to them is how staggering the reversal was. This is such a stark contrast. Notice, he goes from having many demons to no demons. He goes from being naked and ashamed to, as Luke records, clothed and proper goes from living isolated in the tombs among the dead to dwelling among the living back in the city. We'll see that in verse 39. goes from falling down before Jesus, shrieking and shrouding, to now sitting at his feet in silence and listening. goes from being seized over and over again by demons, which drive him to insanity, to being in his right mind, as Luke says. This is a shocking turn of events. This is a complete transformation of this man. This is holistic. And yet perhaps what is more shocking is notice the response of the people who came out to see this. Luke says in verse 37, notice, and all the people of the country, the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him, that is Jesus, to depart from them. And why? Well, for they were gripped with great fear. Megas phobos, literally mega phobia. More terrifying to the people than a demoniac possessed by a legion of demons is the one who has the power to cast them out. 
And this is not fear mixed with faith. This is just fear. Mega fear. Many think that they asked Jesus to leave because he killed off their livelihood by driving all the pigs into the sea. That's how I grew up learning it. This was an economic issue. But that is nowhere to be found. They think that they were angry with Jesus because he somehow killed their their means of living. But again, in none of the Gospels is that actually stated. Rather, this is a fear because whoever has the power to do this must be far more dangerous than even this man. That is the issue. In fact, Matthew states that these demoniacs, there were um, actually two of them. Luke, in his account, just narrows in on this one. But Matthew states that they would harass the people as they would travel the road. In fact, he phrases it as they were exceedingly violent so that no one could pass by. These demoniacs were frightening. These were very dangerous people. And so if you have the power to somehow control these things, then we don't want you anywhere near us. And so they didn't notice, bother to ask what this meant. They didn't actually want to know what this meant. In fact, the word here at the end of verse 36 translated as made well, it's, it's the word sozo. It's, it's the Greek word that means to be saved. And so they didn't care at all, it seemed, that this man was now saved from such torturing realities. He was healed, he was delivered, he was freed from the oppression, freed from this demonic bondage, all things that seemed to be good things. In fact, this would have been an incredible sight for this entire region who's been harassed by these men. And yet their only response is rejection. One commentator observes fear drives their reaction. In fact, they were clearly more at home with the presence of the demonic in their midst than the presence of a power that can drive it away. And so in the face of such demonstrable power, faith does not result but a rejecting fear. It's interesting that so many frauds and charlatans can gather such large crowds with their fake healings and their fake miracles where they claim to cast out demons, they claim to set the so-called oppressed free. I have a feeling that if they actually demonstrated a true power, the crowds might not actually want to come back. There is something frightening about authentic power. about the ability to control that which is utterly uncontrollable and with the word of simple permission. That is a power reserved for God alone. And so the people don't understand. They don't understand what this means. They don't understand the implications. Rather, they just want him gone. And so that is the response. Jesus sets his man free, but the crowd responds in rejecting fear. And so in 38 and 39, we see the end. This is the commission. And by the way, reveals an incredible contrast. Verse 38, notice, but the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. Notice the contrast. The demons begged him not to be destroyed. The people implored him to go away. But the man who'd experienced salvation wants to be with him. It's amazing how a truly transformed person clings to the source of their salvation. This new identity. Again, it's not hard to tell a true Christian, is it? Not hard to discern who's been authentically transformed by the grace and the mercy of Christ. They want him, they want to be with him, they want to be identified by him, they want to be, as in this case, on mission with him. And so this man literally begs Jesus to let him come with him, to let him travel with him, to become a close disciple. But what is the response, end of verse 38? But he sent him away. 
sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. I've said this before on a number of occasions, but there's new people here, so I suppose it bears repeating, but there is a very good reason for why God, when he saved you, didn't just immediately bring you with him to be in heaven. Rather, he saved you and left you, but left you for what? For mission. Notice, he sends this man back to his own city. Doesn't bring him with him back into Jewish country. Rather, he leaves him in Gentile country. Which is to say that he sends him back to his own people. He says, go home. And why? Well, to describe what great things God has done for him. That is his task. That was his commission. And that is amazing, if you think about it. And because he sits at Jesus' feet for just a little while. When I get to heaven, I want to ask him what they talked about. And because apparently in that very short time, that was enough, that was sufficient just in that very short conversation, hear this, to now be fully equipped for everything he needed for mission. Some people think that they need endless training and equipping and basically a PhD to be effective for the cause of Christ. But all you need, beloved, hear this, all you need is your own testimony. Notice, he says, go back and describe what great things God has done for you. The gospel alone is sufficient to save But there is a power when it is presented with personal testimony. And so if you know enough of the gospel to be saved, then you know enough to be used by him. In fact, that is why I always say that the best evangelists are the new new believers. They have got the absolute worst theology, but are somehow the most fruitful And why? Why is that the case? Well, because they are still so compelled by the grace and the mercy that has just been shown to them. It is still fresh in their memory as to what they were. They remember their former life. They remember their sin and lostness. They remember well what it means to be in bondage to their former lusts and sinful desires. And so they know afresh the saving work of Christ and the gospel. It still compels them. It grips their soul. There's a wonder and amazement and awe that God would save someone as wretched as even them. And so this is a wonderful story. First of all, notice it shows the deity of Christ. Verse 39, Jesus commands the man to go back and tell what great things God has done for him. And so what does he do? Well, notice he goes and tells what great things Jesus has done for him. This man came to understand that Jesus was God. He understood in a positive way the confession of the demons. He understood that Jesus was the son of the Most High. Again, I want to know what was talked about in that little conversation. He understood that he was rescued. He understood that he was delivered. He was saved by the God of the universe. He was redeemed by the God of both Jew and Gentile. He was the God Most High. And so this story displays the deity of Jesus Christ. But second of all, it's a wonderful account of what happens to a person when they truly encounter Christ and become transformed by him. Notice the shift in verbs here in verse 39. Jesus tells him to go and describe. What does he do? He goes and proclaims. Jesus tells him to go to his own house. He goes to the whole city. And he just 
keeps on proclaiming, present tense. This was uncontainable. This was an uncontrolled exuberance. He literally couldn't help himself from proclaiming this. He understood that his city was lost and therefore desperately needed this message. And we're not told how many believed or even if any believed, but that's not really the point. The point is that he was faithful to the commission. In fact, if you didn't know, this man becomes the very first missionary in all of the New Testament. He is sent out even before the disciples. And what is so fascinating is that he is described in this passage as being the most oppressed figure. Again, 2,000 demons. The most oppressed becomes the first to be used. And so Jesus shows up, and without even trying, he utterly transforms this man as the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he is the same Lord who has rescued you, if you're a Christian. What I find so personally compelling about this account is that it shows how guilt is not really enough to begin to speak the gospel. There are many Christians who know that they need to evangelize, they need to be on mission, what we call being missional within their own context, and so they feel guilty at times because they're not being as faithful as they ought. Well, I'm here to tell you that feeling guilty about not proclaiming the gospel will never actually cause you to speak. What will cause you to become that faithful missionary that you ought to become is by remembering, and hear this, by remembering the magnitude of your own salvation. It's by remembering your sin, by remembering the hardness of your own heart. It's by remembering the anger and the hatred that you had. It's by remembering all those things which perhaps used to haunt you. Some of you want to suppress that, but I'm here to tell you that that is good to remember that. Because then in light of that, you're able to remember just the magnitude of God's grace and mercy shown towards you and what it meant, therefore, that the sovereign Lord of the universe went on a mission to deliver even you. Or you didn't go to him, but in love, he came to you. And not because of you, but despite you. One man writes that before his conversion, he was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. But then in love, set free. And beloved, that is the testimony of every single one of you. If you are in Christ, And so until you become utterly gripped by that truth, that you and your own sin were a veritable legion, and then remember, truly remember grace, you will not have eyes to see a lost world that so desperately needs salvation. desperately needs a deliverance from their own torment. And you will not proclaim the one who possesses the power to set them free. But that is what happened to this man. He stands out as a wonderful testimony to what true transformation does to a person. And it's also a commentary that there is no sinner too far gone, right? Again, until you can beat 2,000 demons, I think you're pretty safe. The scope of this salvation is unlimited. That is the point. There is no one who is unredeemable, no one who is unsavable. You just need an encounter with the living God. And the way you encounter him is through the message of the gospel. In fact, I find it interesting that none of these herdsmen 
immediately accepted Christ when they saw the miracle, but I do wonder if any of them were converted as this man went about proclaiming to the whole region. Many will say that they'll believe if they can see proof of God or proof that Jesus is God, but the reality is that God saves not through miracles, but through message. It's amazing how many reject Jesus in the gospel despite seeing before their very own eyes miracles, and yet many receive because they've been preached a message. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have that message. You possess the power. Remember, it is through his word that he sets people free, and you have that word. God has placed you in a family. He's placed you in a certain neighborhood. He has put you in a a particular neighborhood for his purpose and in his providence. And so you are now his uniquely commissioned ambassador. And so that is your mission field. That is the place in which you are to proclaim Christ. You are to proclaim the great things he has done for you. And make certain that the gospel that you preach is accompanied with your own testimony. And because that is what a transformed person does. There is no person who, when changed, hides it under a bush. So what about you? What is your story? To whom has Christ sent you? Call this passage is to first recognize who Jesus is, but then second, once he has transformed you, it's to get busy on mission. That is why you are here. You have not been saved merely to go to church or sit in a small group. Rather, you were saved to be sent. And we have a massive city, dead in their sins, hurling toward the abyss under tremendous influence. Jesus, looking at his disciples in John chapter 21, said this. He said, just as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. You have a mission. The Father sent Jesus on a mission. Jesus now sends you on a mission, and it is the same mission. You pick up his baton. And so he sends you to the sinner, to the unclean, That is the divine calling and purpose in your life. So many Christians are so bored with their faith, so bored with their church. But I wonder how many of them are consumed with that divine calling. I think if many just got busy with the mission instead of being so preoccupied with the concerns of this world, they might have something to live for. And so if you are his, you are his living testimony of grace. And so the call of this passage is to remember what you were before Christ and then be compelled because of what you are because of Christ. One man called this passage something like from maniac to missionary. But notice this man wasn't called to go somewhere else. Rather, he was told to just stay where he was. He was called to go home. And that will likely be the case for most of you. You may not go to a foreign land with the gospel, but you will spend your days right here with the gospel. And so instead of maniac to missionary, I've called it from maniacal to missional. That you are a missionary in your own context. And so the application is to just go and tell somebody. You don't even need to pray about it. You already know that that is God's will for your life all the time. It's all over the New Testament, explicitly stated over and over again. He commands all true disciples to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That is your calling. You don't even need to pray about whom you should tell. Notice this man tells the whole city. This is indiscriminate. That is the mandate placed over your life, over my life, over this church every single day as a transformed people. And so again, I say to you, observe the lostness of this city, dead in their sin, 
And then go and tell them what great things Jesus has done for you, what he has done for you and what he can do for them. That is the call. Let's pray. And so, Father, I do pray for all in this room that we all might be able to say that we know and believe this gospel, that we know and love your son. My hope and my prayer is that this word which you've given to us in your providence this morning would not leave us unreflective, but that it might cause us by the power of your spirit to better understand the depths of your love for the lost. And we might understand in a fuller way your compassion and grace toward the sinner. For you knew that there was nothing that we could do, and so you did it for us. I pray for all here this morning that they might see just a little bit more of the glorious reality of what it means that you, the God of all creation, has stooped. That you sent forth your son to take on flesh, to take on the weakness of what it means to be a man, but so that you might enter this world and rescue it from the clutches of its own self-destruction. So may we come, may we bow at the foot of your cross. May we find comfort in knowing that you are a God who loves to save sinners. And then may we be found faithful with this task that you've given us as redeemed creatures with a new purpose. And so impress this truth upon us. I ask that you would establish it in our minds, that you would seal it within our hearts, that we might find a true rest by faith in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.